everyone to today's Environmental Humanities Book Talk. Um, I'm Dali Jorgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And we're happy to have you here. Um, and we are having Charlie Haley today, who's going to be uh, presenting his book, The Porch. And that came out um, this year, yes? Was it 2021? Mm -hmm. um, and so we're, it's a brand new book. We're very excited to hear about these mediations, no, meditations on the edge of nature um, is the subtitle. And it's with University of Chicago Press. So we'll give it over to you, Charlie. All right, great. Thanks to Fenarn and uh, Dali and the Greenhouse for making these uh, dialogues possible. It's really an honor to be here and I look forward to the conversation today. Um, I think ideally we'd be having this conversation not on a porch, but maybe in some ways Zoom has become a kind of virtual porch in some ways. Um, and I'm actually speaking with you from a space that was once an open air porch. Um, this house is about 80 years old and this room on its east side was glassed in, um, ironically, perhaps during the energy crisis in the 1970s um, when the original owners expanded the house for their family. Um, now, despite this kind of closing in, it still breathes with a porch's porousness. And it's a little chilly this morning, as I was mentioning to Fenarn, at least, at least chilly for Florida. Um, so earlier today, I turned on the space heater in the, um, in the closed in porch. Uh, needless to say, I'm fascinated with these kinds of edges in architecture and landscape. And in some ways that may sound marginal, but I, I think peripheries are fundamental to our understanding of the center. And I've always wanted to know more about the margins, practices and places, land and water, spaces, buildings, um, even the architecture profession itself. Uh, here in Florida, I teach and practice architecture. And one of the main ways I approach the discipline is through making. Um, I was trained as a carpenter and I think it's important for us to know uh, how to build what we design. I also think it's critical for designers and builders to really get to know the site where they're building. My mentors, a group called Jersey Devil, uh, established this ethic uh, really early on in their practice in the 1960s and 70s of connecting deeply with a place by actually living on the site where they were building. And my academic research has followed a similar trajectory. My first books emerged out of experiences camping, which I came to understand as a liminal practice that tells us how we make place and how we make home away from home. A subsequent project looked at spoil islands. Those are the artificial islands created as offshoots from the dredging process. And I was able to use my love for kayaking to access these islands. And in many cases, camp out on them to understand how this archipelago makes up an unprecedented public space along North America's coastline. There's thousands of these, uh, of these islands where the pressures of development and conservation meet. During these research voyages, I was also slowly gathering material on porches and porch-like spaces. And one question that, that started this most recent work is what happens when camping comes into contact with the house? And really the simple answer is porch. And there's one particular porch where I've spent a lot of time in the last decade writing, drawing, and thinking. 
And it's a modest porch on a river near the Gulf of Mexico that, uh, here in Florida that inspired me to think about how we experience porches and the environment around them and how that might influence us as architects and designers and more broadly as inhabitants of a rapidly changing environment. The porch is located on the Homosassa River a couple of miles from where it connects to the open Gulf and it's boat access only. So you really um, leave the world behind when you head out there. It was built in 1950, one of the first cabins on the river. And the porch itself is precisely 118 inches deep and 236 inches wide. So uh, almost perfect one to two ratio. And such precision is really unusual in a landscape that's ominously called drowned karst. It's basically a Swiss cheese of limestone that looks the same way whether you're standing a few feet above it or a thousand feet up, sort of a Charles and Ray Eames power of 10 sort of thing. Um, needless to say, it's a precarious place for anybody to live. And, and that's really one of the themes of the book and perhaps at a bigger scale, one of the key issues now for architectural design. How do we design and build for change generally? And how does architecture relate specifically to climate and to climate change? And the porch occupies in between spaces. It's really one big threshold between the built and the natural. It's where in meets out, open overlaps with closed, coming crosses, going, uh, and the condition meets the unconditioned. It's a very porous place. One of the ways I've explored um, that porosity is a series of sketches. Um, nothing extraordinary, but these drawings trace the contours um, between inside and outside. And these are some of the sketchbooks that I carried with me um, for many years onto the porch. And then some of the uh, sketches, just to give you an idea, some of the, if you'll be able to see that, some of the sketches that, um, that I worked on on the, on the porch um, really became a kind of practice um, uh, that I wanted to um, carry out. And I became obsessed with how the wandering line that you saw in those uh, moves back and forth between architecture and nature with the porch as the interface. And these drawings also help visualize the timing of the porch, the waiting, the watching, the witnessing. And along with the sketches, a lot of the book was written on the porch. And in composing the work, I tried to let the pacing reflect the rhythms of the place and the tuning that happens. And I'll read uh, just a real short excerpt from the beginning of the book to try to give uh, a sense of that. Here's the um, book. And this is in the early uh, pages, really the start of the, uh, of the book. A manatee's breath drifts across the porch screen. It is a sound so delicate yet insistent that I stop breathing. I count time in the rings of smooth water that drift with the river's current toward the ocean. I listen for the next breath, but this manatee is moving fast and its footprints blend back into the burnished roll and flicker of the river that holds its own breath between tides. The manatees are on the move this January day as Florida warms after a cold snap. What we call fire weather is what most other parts of the country think of as winter, but manatees know the subtle changes of the lower subtropics. They feel the air through water, like we feel it in porches. That was the fourth manatee I've heard in the past hour. The extraordinary can become routine, but it never gets old. Set back from the river, we don't always see them, 
except for when we catch a black snout sending out its wake like a skidding duck or a piece of driftwood plowing the current. And except that time when a mother came into our lagoon with her calves, the littlest looked like a puppy. There's another one, louder, closer, but on a porch, earshot isn't necessarily eyeshot. It rained last night and the cedars drip like metronomes. A kingfisher calls far enough away to mix with the gentle lapping of breeze and river on limestone. It is quiet today, but it feels like anything can happen. I hear my own breath again, waiting. So as an architect, I'm fascinated with how porches are built, how they function and what their built form means, particularly in the context of current discussions of resilience and climate change. In architecture, we talk about active and passive systems of heating and cooling. Active systems require energy to modify the interior conditioned environment, and passive systems rely on the outside environment, its breezes and its microclimates. Architects also talk about conditioned and unconditioned spaces. Technically, porches epitomize the passive and the unconditioned. But there's a twofold problem of language here, part of a deeper problem of perception. Porches may be unconditioned from the perspective of engineering, but they are intensely conditioned by nature. On the porch, I'm regularly stirred by all that's around me. Breezes move across porch screens, fresh air fosters dream-filled sleep, and the blue ceiling draws on air's depth as well as its folklore. And passive suggests the inert and the dull rather than the vital and the wondrous atmosphere of a porch. Its connotations weaken the very dynamic engagement that porches foster with the environment and with the idea of climate itself. Porches are entirely active agents on this climate frontier. And what I discovered is that porch space, porch spaces frame this vocabulary specifically and more generally redefine approaches to architecture and design. Another thing I've discovered is that the porch is on the move. Unlike its conditioned house, the unconditioned porch is essentially moving south 100 feet every day because of global warming. As temperatures rise, the porch's outdoor thermometer swings higher as well. So from the, from the time I started writing the book to when I finished it, the porch where I was writing had shifted climatically to Tampa, which is 70 miles south. And over that same period, we've seen mangroves colonize the shorelines around the cabin. I'll talk a little bit about the uh, organization of the book and expand a bit more on its content and then wrap uh, things up so we can chat. Um, I think there are four core elements to thinking about a porch and really thinking like a porch. Tilt, air, screen, and blue. And with these, I wanted to rethink the archetypes and the elements often associated with architecture and architectural history like Henry David Thoreau's cabin and Gottfried Zember's four elements of architecture. I hope to account for the edges of architecture where experience tempers essence and building yields to nature. The elements I'm working with also lend themselves to design thinking and each one carries porches essence and paradox. So tilt works from the basic premise that slope yields balance Air mixes freshness with conditioning and public with private. Screen maintains openness with enclosure. And blue makes the invisible visible and finds intersections of the actual and the imagined. 
These four elements demonstrate the fundamental nature of the porch to our humanity as they also build a case for the porch as an indispensable site to feel, understand, and address climate and its changes. As a whole, they tell a story of dwelling and home, resiliency and acclimation. So I'll work through each of the four quickly just to give a sense of, of uh, a bit of the content. Um, tilt is linked to floor and ground and earth, and it's about weather and weathering. The porch floor is a palimpsest of time and weather, and each layer of paint from our porches last seven decades is visible from the wear. Writer William Faulkner talked about porches as heel nod. And the tilt of a floor porch of a porch floor works with the paradox of how slope yields balance. It's so difficult for architects to build imperfection into their architecture, but that's exactly what porches do. The slope of a porch is that slight gradient that feels like a mistake. The recommended eighth of an inch uh, per foot, that's about uh, three millimeters per 30 centimeters is barely noticeable, but enough to shed a rain shower. And twice that, a quarter of an inch does a better job, but you start to notice it. And a porch like mine with closer to three eighths of an inch is enough to tip your balance. And that tilt is the foundation of a porch's resiliency and its capacity to weather the elements. It's like uh, porches assume inundation. They let the water in and then they recover quickly, even if it takes a day for them to dry out. The tilt of a porch builds in what I imagine to be some of the key attributes of resilient design. Sobriety, levity, buoyancy. Um, and, and a porch's tilt also embraces what we might call the warp of the world, which also means that I think it's a great place to sleep. And, and there's a long tradition of sleeping porches. And sleeping there is a combination of vivid joy and ascetic fortitude. Many times I've pulled a rickety metal bed frame out onto the homeless asset porch where I've sweated, shivered, and cursed the tiny gnats called noceums that go through the screen. But I've also heard the lagoon's playground of fish in the early morning before first light. I've watched what seemed to be synchronized shadows of lightning and lightning bugs. And in the book, um, the Homosassa porch anchors stories I tell about other porches. And in this part, part um, one of those porches is a sleeping porch built on the southern portico of the uh, White House. I'll hold up a image and I can show another image of this later if anybody's interested. This is the um, original sleeping shelter on top of the uh, White House roof. And it started as that provisional shelter in 1918 and then it later became the permanent fixture that we know as the sun parlor um, or the solarium on top of the White House. And I, and I think of this as a camping trip on the roof of a national symbol. And it's interesting to think how presidents and their families have occupied the margins of one of the most visible and perhaps public of houses. For the second element, porches wrap architecture in air. And that captured air is where a house breathes. And, where, and it's also where public and private mesh. In many cases, porches are exempt from hurricane shutters. And it's interesting to study how they perform in wind events. Um, almost 30 years ago now, I rebuilt a house that went through the eye of Hurricane Andrew in South Florida. The house was built by my mentors who I mentioned before. And each end of the house has these amazing uh, second floor cantilevered porches. And when I arrived to start rebuilding, I was amazed at how well the house, particularly the two end porches had weathered the storm and its 200 mile an hour winds. 
system of passive cooling works through the entire skin of this house, through its walls and its roofs, which allowed the house not only to equalize itself to the plunging barometer, but it also permitted the air to blow on through. And no better example of how that worked than the two end porches. There are many social aspects to porches as well. Many, many porches here in North America uh, essentially serve as big mailboxes for Amazon packages. And because of their semi-public nature, they are susceptible to theft. And so up until the pandemic, most of the news coming from porches was about porch pirates um, who stole these, who steal these packages. And then during the pandemic, porches became stages for impromptu performances from opera arias to jazz jam sessions. Um, and porches are, are ready-made, really ready-made architectures of social distancing, connecting but maintaining distance at the same time. And I think they might be the original social media. And, and of course, social media has been filled with pictures of people on their porches. Hashtags like portrait and porch portrait are common now. And there's a long tradition of such portraiture that is both public and self-reflexive. Posing on a porch constructs not just what we will see, but how it will be seen. The subjects tune themselves to the architecture of the porch. On a porch in the relative freedom of its open air, we become the architecture. More precisely, the scaffold of a porch lends itself to the performative nature of architecture. We lean on posts, Grass balusters recline on chairs, swing our feet over its edges, perch on railings, glide on its swings, cascade down steps. On a porch, we construct an image as we also constantly rebuild the porch with our presence. And porches remain as active agents in the life of a community. This is what John Berger calls living and communal portraits. Portraiture, portraiture ultimately tells stories like porches. A porch is also the place where hosts meet guests. Historically, it's the scene of hospitality. In the book, I tell a story about a family we rescued when their pontoon wrecked during a storm and wet and cold, they sheltered on our porch and they wouldn't leave even after the storm had passed. And so they, they tested the limits of our hospitality there at the limits of our cabin. And they also helped us realize how many people the porch could hold. And it's no more than 11. And if our porch was deep enough to allow multiple conversations and it's 10 feet uh, of depth is just enough. The third element screen maintains openness with enclosure. The porch protects as it exposes and a porch screens its house in a similar way that porch screens protect the space from insects. The screen is that frontier where air touches the porch. Part of this research was studying the history of screen material. And the first architectural screening was cheesecloth that was stretched across windows in farmhouses um, and other buildings where um, uh, the cloth was already being used for dairy skimming and for food safes. And in my research, I studied documents from the Insect Wire Screening Bureau. Its name kind of reminded me of something out of Monty Python. Um, and it was actually, I learned here at the University of Florida with its swamps and water-saturated ground, no strangers to mosquitoes and all variety of insects, where they were trying to figure out the optimum density for the weave of screen. And they discovered that 20 by 20, which is 20 wires per inch in each direction is pretty good. Um, but I've also found in my own experience that it doesn't really keep out those um, noceums. It's also interesting that at that micro scale, that when you use the standard 18, by 16 mesh orientation, 
uh, orientation actually matters um, because of the way mosquitoes fly. And screens also create a microclimate along their surface. For months, I studied a twig caught on the screen as it weathered and changed and became the home to spiders and pollen, and then birds picking insects caught in the spider's web. Um, porches let you out into the world, but still be undercover, and you can be susceptible and sheltered at the same time. The porch screen lets you be candid yet reserved. It pulls you in close and fastens the ropes, but it also shoves you away from the dock. And that's not something to architecture typically does, allowing for the precarious within the stability of an edifice. Architect Louis Kahn called this wrapping ruins around the building. Another way of saying that is that Kahn built with air, and he called those constructions he made along the edges of his buildings porches. The solution to the problem of the screen yields porches that are as poetic as they are practical. They're built of light and air and imagination just as much as they are conceived of concrete and brick and function. It's a logic at the heart of architecture itself. And here's Kahn. Um, the, the order of light tells you that the porch belongs to the sun and the porch and the place inside the porch belongs to man. And with the porch as an occupiable screen, the logic takes this wonderful environmental turn, one that also yields the metaphysical. Building isn't a foregone conclusion. It's a contract not only between those who occupy the design, um, it's also a negotiation with nature, which is why Khan called the porch an offering to the sun. You offer something up when you're taking something else and when you owe something back. And ultimately Khan made climate visible in the porches that he designed. So I'll talk briefly about the, the fourth element and then um, uh, uh, wrap, wrap the uh, introduction up. The fourth element, blue, makes the invisible visible and finds intersections of the actual and the imagined. Soon after I started writing the book, I painted the cabin's porch ceiling blue-green. And there's a long tradition, not just in the southern U.S., of painting porch ceilings uh, shade of robin's egg blue. Folklore says that insects are drawn to a blue ceiling because they mistake it for the sky. It's also possible that the lye, common in older mixes of blue paint, acted as a kind of bug repellent, sending insects away from the porch. But I've always wondered, wouldn't that just send them back down to the, from the painted ceiling to where everybody is sitting? The shade of blue most commonly used includes a tinge of green, and like the color of robin's, egg, of robin's eggs, it holds the color of water as well as a tree canopy. And scientists have actually found that these uh, bird's eggs match the ambient light at particular heights of a tree and in specific types of forests. And on uh, the porch in Homosassa, I really learned to appreciate the color of that ambient light that blended the blue of water and the green of mangrove leaves and cedar needles. Before I painted the ceiling, I traveled to Stockholm and was fortunate to spend time in the Woodland Cemetery designed by Gunnar Asplund and Sigurd Leverance. Since I began studying, practicing, teaching architecture, I've been intrigued by Leverance's Resurrection Chapel. It's a project he began in the 1920s. And to reach the porch, you move down the path of the seven wells. And once you arrive, you realize that not only is the chapel's monumental porch detached ever so slightly from the main chapel, from the chapel's main building, but this offset is skewed even more subtly, though ever so significantly from the chapel. The angle hardly registers in floor plans, and it's easy to miss the gap as you move from the porch 
into the chapel. The screw of the porch, its tilt within the vastness of the world is a fraction about one ten thousandth of a more than half mile distance of the path. Initially, whether you recognize that gap or not, you have a sense of passing from one state to another. The angle is a matter of inches, a difference that could be interpreted as a mistake rather than an intention, but it's by design. Once you realize it's there, the skew has the import of life and death. And that wedge of air between the porch and the chapel tells us that, the pro that this process is one of constant adjustment and the ongoing work of reconciling our place in nature and its place in us. And it affected me most deeply when I looked up and saw the gentle taper of sky. It was a sliver of blue. Um, I, I recently wrote an essay for Orion Magazine in which I asked the question, what it means to think like a porch. And one part, one part of that is thinking about how building might be repairing. And in the process of rethinking of our relationship with nature, a combination of witnessing and changing point of view. I think a porch is as close as architecture can bring us to climate and its current changes. And it's a place where active reflection and attentive experience hold clues for both response and acclimation. Um, the, the environmentalist uh, Rachel Carson talked about playing what she called the hunting game from the porches of the places she lived. She would listen to nature's sounds and then either go out and find the source or imagine what she was hearing. And I think the porch is a jumping off point for both. Um, it makes room for reverie and action, just as it tells stories of joy and urgency. So thank you. Looking forward to the um, conversation. Thanks, Charlie. It's really fascinating to hear. And also, I think a lot that resonates with people who you know, come from the environmental humanities in your initial uh, reflections then on architecture and place, you know, the this sense of really getting to know a place, uh, which is, I think, very uh, common also in environmental humanities. Uh, and I think more so in recent years too, uh, the attention to materiality uh, also, and mm -hmm. the built environment is coming in more and more in environmental humanities too. So I think, you know, we have here this, this, this core of a very interesting uh, conversation across fields. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was wondering about um, the body in relation to the porch and, and architecture in general. I mean, this embodiment, uh, the way the body experiences and and uses nature. I mean, you you talked indirectly about the body, you know, of your body. Sometimes we experiencing particular things on the porch. But could you say a little bit more about the relationship between the porch and the body? Yeah, I was I've been by that um, idea that the porch um, kind of augments our connection to the place uh, in a way um, that I think other parts of architecture um, really can't do. And um, the I mentioned before the precariousness of the porch and how it puts us out in, in a lot of ways in a place where we're not not that we're not supposed to be there, but it's a place that is, I think, as much, uh, if not more, a part of the environment than the architecture that we've created. So that connection, um, whether it's 
you know, on, a, on an extremely calm day and it's, it's more about kind of meditating and, and um, uh, connecting in that way, or if it's during a storm and really connecting um, through the really visceral experience of the um, body um, that way. The other, other thing that I was, one of the other things I was interested in is looking at how artists have occupied the porch and how they've used it as a, almost like an instrument um, I looked at uh, Charles Mingus, uh, you know, playing the bass on the um, uh, on the porch in LA. I looked at um, Paul Strand and his photographic studies on a porch in Connecticut. And some people actually say that the that abstraction was invented on that porch in Connecticut in some of his early photographs in the 19 teens and 20s. Um, and I think it was all about that connection of um, the body in a form of practice, kind of a form of environmental practice that allows for those um, connections to, uh, to happen. I imagine Strand, you know, feeling the warmth of the sun on his skin as he's also studying the shadows of the balustrade of the porch where he's, uh, where he's working. So it was really like a kind of embodied laboratory for exploring um, the uh, uh, conditions of light and air. I found this really interesting, um, having grown up in the southern US also, so I'm a Texan, um, and so, and, and relatives in Arkansas, and so everybody has a porch, right? Um, and thinking about the porch screen in particular, and um, your analysis there, I'm, I'm wondering if you could say more about the porosity of the screen, um, particularly in thinking about things that that break through it so it's not just the screen itself but you of course you have to have a door um mm. to go in and out of there often you have a um cat door or many people do mm. that's in that door um that also creates this this through um you know going through the porch to get out so you have the house you have the porch as an enclosed but porous space mm. and then the outside and thinking about the ways, and you, you made the point about the gnats, but the ways in which a porch then attempts to keep insects out. But of course, if they get in, then they're in, right? Mm -hmm. They also can't get out. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how it functions as this porous space, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a great point. The, the way the bugs get in or the, is the way that water is going to need to get out, right? So there's this kind of wonderful, you know, water needs to go that way and, and bugs are going to come that way. And a lot of people forget this is real kind of small detail, but a lot of people forget to screen the floor when they build a, when they build a porch, because any gaps in the, in the floor, uh, bugs are going to come right up through that. Um, and, and Dolly, your question makes, reminds me of another part of the, I think it's related to the porosity and it's also related to the materiality of screen. One of the things that been fascinated by is the um, the veiling reflection of screen and the way that you and it's also related to the kind of social aspect of a porch the way that you sort of occupy that and if the if the light is right nobody really knows you're there right it's, it becomes a very private space even during the day um, and one of the things I love is the um, diurnal difference between screen porches so during the day um, again when the light is is right it's almost as if the screen isn't there, sort of dissipates, evaporates. 
And then at night, when you turn on a, a light on the porch, the screen becomes almost like a, it becomes very opaque, almost becomes a wall. So there's that, there's that um, kind of dual function that uh, I think gets, gets to you know, different kinds of porosities that create different sense of the space um, at different times of the day. So we have a couple of questions in the chat um, that we go through. And so um, first we have Micah who's wondering about the porch um, as a place of surveillance. You know, we're talking about the relationship to neighbors because uh, mm -hmm. it's a place from which you can be seen, but you can also observe. Um, mm -hmm. And it was interesting. She was mentioning also not just people, but also non-human neighbors. You know, you. You, you keep in track of not just manatees, but also unwanted animal visitors mm -hmm. uh, and so mm -hmm. on. The so, porch becomes the, the liminal space in which, you know, the cat uh, or the neighborhood dog, or, you know, it's your dog can be on your porch, right? But somebody else's dog can't be on your porch. Um, mm -hmm. The cat can come in the door, but not a raccoon. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what are, so our question, what are, what are we willing to accept on our porch? So what happens when we have unwelcome visitors? Yeah, it's funny. I, I think it was um, maybe Deegan in his review. He talks about it as a public, the porch is a public forum for you know people, but also for for insects and for animals and for uh, other um, other uh, agents. Um, and um, certainly, the question of surveillance is an, an important one, and it goes back to um, you know, historically the porch as a um, part of the neighborhood and the connection between neighbors sort of watching out for each other um, and, um, but also connecting with, with each other. And I think that's the, that paradox, I think is really an important part of the, uh, of the porch. Um, and the other, the other thing is the relationship of host to guest and the role of porch in traditions of hospitality, uh, I think is also fascinating. I mean, the porch is that kind of, space where you're not quite in the house, um, you're not quite in the you know, private domestic space, you're maybe still a part of the street. Um, there's some places that have actually kind of defined the porch as the place that is really more part of the public space than others. There, there was one, and it was in a um, Eudora Welty short story um, where she, and, and it's the porch where public drinking is allowed. Um, even though you're in your property, but there was some question about whether you know drinking would be allowed on a, on a porch. Um, and uh, yeah, so the oh, and the other the other thing that I found fascinating, kind of in that that history of host and guest relationships, is looking as far back as the um, Greeks, um, and that was really the porch was the space where suitors were allowed to go. That was sort of the farthest extent. And even further back, if we talk about early Christian architecture, um, the porch was the place where um, unbaptized um, parishioners were allowed to go. That was sort of the extent of that they could go. And there was actually a sequence, quite, and I unpack it a little bit in the book. There was actually a, a quite complicated sequence of thresholds um, of which the porches played a pretty important part um, in that um, process. Of um, of entering uh, a church. 
So Gabriella had a question about um, race, really. So uh, she was asking about porches in Appalachia, enslaved populations, the porch in the Jim Crow South. So does the southern porch become the front steps, uh, front steps of a house as African Americans migrated into cities? Uh, you know, have any thoughts on how it became a, a, a lethal space in LA or Baltimore? Hmm. That's true, right? It, it has a it, it it has that kind of vulnerability, right? In a in a and sometimes in urban spaces. Um, and the um, writer Zerenio Hurston writes um, about the porch in African American culture and in many of her stories. It plays um, that really important social space of uh, both of community, of interaction, of dialogue, um, also of surveillance. And, um, and, and I, I think you're right. I think some of that, um, that uh, social aspect of the porch did kind of move into the urban um, uh, environments as well. And it's actually the front porch where um, Zora Neale Hurston conducted many of her oral history um, interviews in the, in the South, um, particularly in the 1930s during the uh, Federal Writers Project. So that space became, you know, not just a traditional place of conversation, but also became a really pivotal historical place for recording folklore and um, and uh, stories. And and um, there's an architect in South Florida, Jermaine Barnes, who recently has been looking at the more urban porch um, in um, African-American culture, contemporary culture, and um, recently had an um, exhibit at MoMA um, looking at the, the um, sort of the complexities of that um, social space in, um, in uh, uh, Black culture. It's really, a, a really fascinating. I think it might even, I think it might still be up at the MoMA. Thanks. So we have now Ralph. I'm going to unmute you so you can answer your question. Uh, hello. Um, thanks so much for this uh, fascinating uh, talk, which made me think a lot about portraits, which I really didn't do that much <laughs> until until today. Um, I, I basically have two questions. Uh, the first is to do with uh, the Americanness of the porch. So um, yeah, I'm currently here in Belgium, so it's a non-existent phenomenon here. But of course, I do know it from uh, American films, right? So it's it's very iconic in, in many American films. So I wonder uh, whether you can speak to uh, yeah, the extent that it's particularly prominent in American culture and what that says about the porch. Uh, and then my second question has to do with um, the porch is a place of environmental reflection, right? You hinted at that it sort of elicits this type of reflection, how it can be uh, conducive to that type of reflection. Uh, but then probably there's also porches that don't do that, right? So I can think of <laughs> uh, mentions of Donald Trump, which have giant porches, but probably not a lot of uh, environmental reflection is going on there. So um, yeah, I'm wondering a little bit, could you differentiate this a little? Could it also be a symbol, for instance, of, of wealth rather than a place of um, environmental reflection? Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. And, you know, in the, in the research um, of kind of the contemporary porch, it really became a kind, I mean, it, one, 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 um, 
theme is a sort of nostalgia for porch and that porches symbolize um, you know, maybe a particular time period, particularly in North America, um, whether it's 1950s, whether it's earlier, um, a kind of reach for that sort of past um, uh, social structure, connectivity, whatever, whatever it is. Um, so that a lot of the porches have become, uh, because they've become iconic or become, become symbols, they really aren't occupiable. So you see a lot, particularly in suburban North America, where the porch is about like literally that wide or that deep. Um, and it's really just an idea of a porch that's sort of tacked on to the to the skin of a of a house or of a building, um, and that that led me to see like what is the minimum that we can get? And you sometimes see people cramming you know, rocking chairs out on the out on these really really narrow front porch, but they're never they're never gonna um, sit there. But they also put other things that that kind of uh, add weight to that symbolism of the uh, of the porch. Um, and I think that is a kind of signaling of wealth and of um, an idea that you, know, you could have this thing on, on attached to your house. It really isn't functional anymore. Um, and your other your other question um, about the um, American qualities of the porch, I think, is really interesting. I, mean, I think it, it does have connections both to the Southern United States and the Western United States, California. I think in, in many ways, California, at least for um, some aspects of the porch was, was where a lot of the um, traditions um, started. And cause I had the same sort of, um, starting out, I had the same sort of assumption that it was mainly the deep South and California. But what I found was in the 1920s, there was this whole um, uh, outgrowth of um, porches, particularly sleeping porches in the Midwestern United States, um, which isn't a place that you necessarily think you're always gonna be sleeping outside, right? So it's not just climate oriented. And, and part of this was the 19 teens and 20s, um, physicians, particularly in California, were promoting outdoor sleeping as this healthful, imperative that we all um, should uh, take part in. And that's actually one of the reasons I think why that sleeping structure was built on the top of the White House. It was sort of a part of what was then called this fad of um, sleeping outside for, um, for health. And, and actually newspapers are saying that even, even the White House isn't immune to this, um, to this uh, uh, fad of uh, sleeping porch. Well, I was wondering if, as an architect, what you see is the difference in functionality between the front porch and the back porch. So, the, you know, how do those end up showing up physically, materiality, you know, built into them uh, that make them different? Or are they not? Yeah, no, they are. They are. It's, it's fascinating. And, and I think the front porch, you know, maybe it, in a obviously was sort of that public front and the back porch was oftentimes much more informal, even just the way it was made um, and the way it was occupied and the, um, uh, the way it was formed. Uh, a lot of times you see them much more improvised sort of ad hoc spaces um, and uh, maybe more informal. Um, 
activities to, and a lot of times actually the back porch was the sleeping porch in, in houses that had both. Um, so there's a, there is a really interesting relationship between um, uh, front and back. And there, there's actually a project in California, this is, you know, hundred years ago that um, had both front and back porches. And it was really the kind of, I think it's sort of the, almost like the climax of the addition of porches to houses at that time. And the, the um, porches are actually larger than the main living space. Um, and, uh, you know, the back porch takes on this more informal role, but, the, um, but it's really not that much smaller than the, than the um, front porch. So, but definitely the intimacy of a back porch in a lot of the stories that um, I read, um, Eudora Welty and, and other Southern writers, it was the back porch where a lot of the uh, eavesdropping occurs, you know, where you hear the kind of things that, um, you know, hear the stories and hear um, the uh, conversations that may not, may not have been wanted to, to be heard. So we talked a bit about architecture as a way of experiencing nature. Um, and I think there you also find uh, considerable variation uh, across the planet. So here in Norway, we have a very uh, deep cabin culture. So people are supposed to have their cabin and that's where they go to experience nature. Um, I've done research on the cabin now for over a decade. I better finish my book on that soon. Uh, she laughs. <laughs> uh, but there, I mean, I'm thinking then about, you know, we don't really have in most cabins that type of, of porch that you described, the American style porch. Uh, but we do have, uh, it's fairly common to have a uh, area with a roof over. It can be that the cabin roof mm -hmm. extends over a deck, but it's really to protect people from the rain. And those spaces tend to follow the sun, you know, so that you can maximize the amount of sun you get when you sit there. Um, that's really the case uh, with with our house too. We have a front porch that we never use uh, because, I mean, there's no sun there. And there's the back that's glassed over, so we don't get rain, but we get lots and lots of sun there. Uh, and I think that's, that's quite common then. but. Uh, do you then see other ways of using architecture to experience nature? Do you have uh, other similar examples or would you say the, the porch, I mean, yes, it's a, good, it's a good case, it's a good metaphor also, but are there others that can, can also do something interesting there? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I like the, um, one, of, one of the things that I, was trying to explore was this idea of porch as a method and as a method that could be transferable to other, whether they're liminal spaces, edge spaces, transitional spaces, and, and what that might look like. And, and, you know, not to push the porches reach you know, too far, but I, but I do think it similar ideas show up in um, places like fire escapes, places like roof scapes, um, uh, I love the way Fenarn, you're talking about the the different orientations of the um, overhangs of the uh, of the house and how that those those edges even just slightly covered um, really kind of wrap the building in 
different conditions, whether they're phenomenal conditions or climatic conditions or both, um, different ways to experience those, those edges. Because um, I even think there's uh, you know, porch qualities. We mentioned the stoop before. I think there's porch qualities, even to something as simple as like a um, tailgate of a, of a truck that's folded down that you can sit on and that, that you kind of um, experience that, the place uh, even for that moment um, in time. And I think for me, some of this goes back to the role of camping as a way of making place because I think the, the mobility that camping offers um, in some ways is different from what a porch offers, but I think porch attributes can be um, uh, applied in, a, in a kind of a wide range of, a wide range of contexts. Um, so yeah, it was a great, great question. I think it, I think it is, I think it changes scale. I think that what a porch does can, can change scale. Um, and as long as it can connect with the body um, in some way, I think it's, it's doing a lot of what a maybe traditional conventional porch would be, would be doing. So Magda has a question about time, which I also think is really interesting in that, you know, you can think about this, this the time you spend on, on the porch as one that doesn't have necessarily a specific purpose. It's not efficient uh, in a way, um, which I think also then is very similar to what you see with the Norwegian cabin uh, there. You know, it's it's about, it's a different sen sense of time when you're there. At least that's the, uh, I would say the, the traditional way of understanding it, though now it's become very efficient. Uh, mm -hmm. So does, does the porch have to be non-efficient? Do you have examples of you know, time efficient porches? <laughs> time efficient? <laughs> that's a great, that's a really good question. Because uh, as I was reading uh, Magna's question, I was you know, immediately I think of durational time, right? The, the porches are really good at that. Uh, like Henri Bergson, like duration and and beaded moments, and, and they're really good at that. Um, I, yeah, efficient, uh, the efficient, efficiency of a porch in uh, in, in time. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that they're really good at those transitional moments between inside and outside. Like when we you know, we we pause, um, maybe to welcome somebody, and then and then move inside. So that might be a, a kind of a efficient transition. Um, between the two. So if we're actually moving through the porch, I think that's probably a different kind of time than if we're sitting down, having a chat um, or meditating or really just absorbing the, the context. So I, I love the idea that maybe there's a, there's a kind of at least two different kinds of time that, that operate. Because um, I also think there's an archaeological time that, that operates on a porch, at least the way that I sort of um, have, have experienced them. So I think there's all kinds of um, all kinds of uh, time there. That's it's really great. Um, you pointed that out. So I think also there's something to be said about privilege uh, and porches. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the you know the urbanization process, suburbs. Also, a porch is that something you would say that implies that you have a house? Uh, mm -hmm. What happens with the the space the function that a porch fills when people move into apartments 
you know, mm-hmm. again, more efficient buildings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's, that's a great point. And porches do, um, in, in, in their kind of conventional form and in their space, their occupiable space, they do, um, they do need that, that space. Um, yeah, and it, with um, apartments, it, it, one of the things I haven't studied a lot, but it's fascinated me are the sort of porch spaces in the urban, like public porch spaces in the, in the urban condition. Um, and you see that in, um, even in New York, where it's just a space to kind of get out of the street and um, uh, kind of pause and um, uh, breathe, really. Um, but yeah, it requires a more collective, becomes a more collective endeavor than, than the privilege, the private privilege of having, a, of having a, your own um, outdoor um, space. So yeah, I think there's a, that's a real contrast um, between, um, between the domestic porch and uh, maybe urban, urban porch. Well, then I was wondering about, um, you know, you talked about the porch then as this contemplative space and sitting there, but then I got to thinking about one of the the pieces of furniture that's always on a porch in where I, when I think of porch is the rocking chair. Mm-hmm. You sit in the rocking chair and the rocking chair is actually about motion and not about stillness. And mm-hmm. so I was wondering, um, yeah, how you think about kind of the porch as a motion filled space or rhythmic space um, in particular and getting in touch kind of with the the rhythms of the environment beyond the porch as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great, I love that question because it, it's, you know, in some ways we might be moving like in a rocking chair, but in other cases, everything around us is moving. Um, and uh, for me, that's multi, it's multiple senses, right? It might be, it might be visual, but it might also be acoustic, um, the way that sounds move in and out of the porch. Um, uh, there's a John Prine song that I've, I've um, often thought of when I, with shadows, when I look at shadows on the ceiling, he says, I, I, I don't know what I'm feeling until I see that, watch the shadows move across the ceiling. And that movement of um, shadow, and in some cases, reflected water on the ceiling um, the movement of shadows across the porch screen. Um, there's a kind of connection, probably goes back to the question of time too, of, of fast time, the flutter of a bird across the, of a bird shadow across the screen, um, as opposed to the more slow um, movement of shadows um, uh, throughout the day. I think many places too, you also have, you know, a seasonal time that mm-hmm. the porch goes, right, ours has gone now into its winter uh, hibernation in a way. It doesn't get used all that much, but then we're looking forward to the spring then when we can start using it again. I mean, we actually shoot a lot of the, the book talks out there mm-hmm. uh, when it's warm enough. Yeah. So, but our time is out. uh, So we should wrap things up. So I'd just like to uh, thank Charlie Haley uh, at the School of Architecture at the University of Florida for coming here to present uh, his book, The Porch Meditations on the Edge of Nature, which came out with University of Chicago Press this year in 2021. 
so thanks to you and thanks also to the audience for some great questions here. Thanks, Vinod and Dali, and thanks for your questions. I really enjoyed the conversation.